What's up, world? I'm Matt Newberg from Hungary, and this is The Feed. Each episode, we'll dive into conversations with the industry insiders who are leveraging technology to shape the way we eat. On today's episode of The Feed, the Hungry Trends community sat down with George Jacobs, founder and CEO of Accelerate, an order aggregator and licensor of seven virtual brands. Jacobs has spent 28 years in the restaurant industry, from working at his family's pizzeria to joining the founding team of DoorDash Drive. This past summer, the startup announced a $14.4 million Series A from Sequoia. In this episode, we'll cover the early days of DoorDash, the future role of marketplaces, what distinguishes Accelerate from competitors like Nextbyte, and much more. So I'm very happy to welcome George Jacobs on the show today. He is the founder and CEO of Accelerate, a B2B marketplace of host kitchens and virtual brands that's processed over 7 million orders over the past two years. Prior to Accelerate, George is one on the founding team that spun up DoorDash Drive, and he has also consulted for chains like IHOP, Blaze Pizza, and Applebee's. George, great to have you on today. Thanks for having me, Matt. Happy to be here. I find your background really fascinating you know, from the DoorDash drive days to what you built now and some of your consulting work. But I want to kind of go back a little bit even further and kind of talk about your experience with the restaurants from an early age as your family was kind of in the restaurant space, curious to to start there and, and hear more about what that was like for you growing up. Yeah. So, I mean, the story of Accelerate really started like a little over 28 years ago. And I was less than a week old when my, my mom and dad first introduced me to our family pizzeria, Georgie's Pizza. And you know, growing up, I, I I always thought that I wanted to open up more George's Pizza locations. My mom would always say that from the time that I was probably like four or five years old, she couldn't keep me out of my family pizzeria. I just loved being there, interacting with the guests, the customers, working with my dad. And I think what the experience gave me uh, growing up in George's was just a, a front row seat into, I think, the most remarkable ch- period of change that we've seen in the restaurant industry. And as I was Going to high school and college, I started seeing the evolution and the shift towards delivery and marketplaces and the pivotal role that technology would play. And so I think that's why I, you know, post-college decided to join DoorDash, spent a lot more time thinking about restaurants and technology. And my passion shifted a little bit from opening up more Georgie's Pizza locations to figuring out how I could help every restaurant anywhere through great software and great technology. But growing up in the pizza business and at my dad's restaurant uh, gave me that insight that was so critical to be effective at at DoorDash and build solutions for for restaurant consumers, which is, again, what we're doing today at Accelerate. Where was this based and how many locations did you guys have? And also curious to hear like your guys' first kind of foray into the market, world of marketplaces. So Georgie's is based in La Cunada, California. It was opened in 1980 by my dad when he was 22 years old. And it was pretty much all he did for 41 years. Never expanded, never opened up more locations. He had um, just a single mom and pop shop that we always went to and and worked at growing up. Our first experience with marketplaces was, you know, probably started with Grubhub in the mid early 2000s. And I think we saw a lot of growth in the marketplace segment, obviously, as as time went on um, with Postmates in, in 2010 in DoorDash in 2013. And that's what ultimately really led me to join DoorDash in 2015. You know, delivery had been core to Georgie's business forever, being a pizzeria. My dad had his own drivers, his own staff, his own delivery cars. 
And I think I saw such a great opportunity, especially for restaurants that maybe operated a cuisine that wouldn't be as busy as Georgie's Pizza would from a delivery standpoint, just because pizza delivery inherently has pretty good efficiencies. Um, but there are a lot of restaurants that want to do a one-off delivery, but don't want to staff up to do mm-hmm. it. And so I think that experience really led me to see what value companies like DoorDash would provide in the long term mm-hmm. to not only folks like my dad, but um, restaurants everywhere. How big, you know, from a like a revenue mix percentage, was delivery for Georgie's when you guys were doing Grubhub? Delivery overall, including like first party delivery, was probably about 30 to 40% of the business. Wow. So it was, a, it was a really large chunk of, of our business at, at Georgie's. Got it. So you, you were able to accept orders over the phone. And I'm assuming now that they're, they're doing more white label and stuff, but, but yeah. then that add, started adding on more marketplaces over time. Yeah, absolutely. As more marketplaces um, started, then more marketplace partnerships would happen. Uh, we'd get more orders from from DoorDash and Postmates and Grubhub. But what's funny is the maybe not funny, but um, most of the orders at Georgie's are always through first party channels. I think we spent a lot of time investing in that and spent a lot of time building relationships in the community. So the vast majority of delivery orders, even up until the last year, were first party. Cool. So yeah, pulling more on that that first party thread, you joined DoorDash. I think you started in a different role than DoorDash Drive, but then you eventually became part of the DoorDash Drive team. I'm curious to just kind of hear like what what was the hypothesis back then? What year this was this and the core things you were focused on at the beginning when you were when you were starting this program and what sorts of restaurants you were starting it with? Yeah, so I started DoorDash as a launcher in 2015 and One of the unique things about being a launcher is that you spend so much time with customers and spending a lot of time with customers gives great insights. And one of the insights that I got from customers was that they had delivery orders that they needed drivers to fulfill, but they didn't have the drivers to fulfill them. And at DoorDash early on and still today, we cared a ton about powering local economies and we cared about being a logistics company. And we realized that to be a great logistics company and to power local economies, we needed to not only deliver orders that came through our marketplace, but deliver any order that a customer needs last mile. So the hypothesis is that many, many delivery orders are going to be placed. Not all of them will be placed on our marketplace, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't deliver them. And that's how DoorDash Drive started. Makes total sense. And what were the sort of restaurants you guys started with? Where where were you piloting drive as far as the markets? We were very proud about how how scrappy I think the, the the team was at DoorDash early on. So we started the first restaurant ever launches in Vancouver, mm-hmm. and the way that we started was actually creating restaurants that like consumers would be able to order off of on our front end on doordash.com. And then we would encourage the, re- the, the restaurant would basically just order from themselves to summon a driver. And then once we started proving that, we started building more technology and tools around it. But in the very early days, that's how DoorDash Drive started. And we primarily early on were working with local mom and pop shops, independent restaurants, helping them fulfill their orders both small order fulfillment, but also catering. And then we started expanding from there and signed a couple 20 plus location chains. And then the business really has grown grown from there. 
Interesting. I just want to understand that hack a little bit better. You basically, it was looked like a marketplace order, but it was really just a white label kind of? Yeah. So basically the restaurant would just go to doordash.com. We would give them like a custom link I see. and they would order like they were a consumer, which would then summon the driver. And we use that to prove the concept out early okay. on and, and then very quickly started to integrate it in with our technology and really placed a big bet early on on DoorDash Drive and built the APIs so that we could integrate with larger enterprise mm-hmm. chains. And now it's the you know largest last mile white label fulfillment platform for restaurants and fulfills many, many deliveries uh, daily for for all types of merchants. Totally. Yeah. You, you need that liquidity in the marketplace to get the marketplace orders delivered on time. And part of doing that is is by servicing these kind of first party orders through that kind of agnostic, um, you know, logistics network that's handling kind of both, both sides. So I, I, you know, really loved your, your, you had a 90 page deck that you came up with in 2019. I, this was, this was before you started Accelerate or this was, um, so you were consulting for some restaurants and it was called deliver or die, which I, I like that title. And some of the key takeaways that I, I came up with is like, you compared a lot of, you know, do, what delivery companies should be doing to, to, you know, the Amazon, Netflix's, Apple's, Airbnb's, Uber's of the world. You know, you called out kind of the move away from exclusivity from, from certain marketplaces. Uh, you made a lot of comparisons between the travel industry and what's going on with the restaurant industry now, kind of the OTA comparison with marketplaces, looked a lot at incrementality of those sales. And then, you know, one of the things that I really have been saying a lot, which is this like idea of providing an experience versus a meal, which you touched on, this idea that restaurants kind of in this new economy need to kind of decide if they're going to focus on the four wall experience or focus kind of on the convenience side of the consumer demand. So I'm just kind of curious how you kind of decided to publish this and what that response was initially. Yeah, so the deck had, I mean, really great response and sparked so many tremendous conversations after I posted it. I think the reason for the deck was because in many ways I I became scared for some restaurants that didn't really realize how big and instrumental the shift was that was taking place. And I wanted this to be a piece of content that let them know where the, where I thought the industry was headed and how they could capture a lot of the opportunity that would be created by the massive shift to digital and delivery. And I think that there are times when it makes sense to go against the grain I didn't think that this was one of them. We knew that consumer behavior and preferences are gravitating towards delivery. And if restaurants understood that and focused, hyper-focused on being customer-centric, like a lot of these great technology companies have done, then they would be able to capture on the opportunity, just like many of the marketplaces were. They'd be able to run more profitable restaurants. They'd be able to best serve their consumers. And I wanted this deck to be an an outlet and a piece of information for them to start executing against strong goals with delivery and and to start going with the grain and working with consumer preferences and consumer behavior. Yeah, I mean, I I think it was a very even-handed deck as well. I think you definitely called out 
the marketplace is forgetting into certain things like private label as the kind of inevitability of what's going to happen. And we're seeing that happen, I think, right now with DoorDash. But then you're also pointing out this kind of benefit to this new model where um, because you don't have a front of house, you can l- leverage lower you know, labor and occupancy costs, but then you're going to have marketplace fees instead. So it is kind of a new reality we're working with. So like, how, how have you seen that play out? And then like, how did that lead to what you're doing now with Accelerate? Yeah. So in terms of your initial question, like how I saw it playing out, I think the biggest challenge with profitability and the way that restaurants look at profitability for delivery really centers around like cost attribution. And so when delivery marketplaces started to grow in size and started to charge higher fees to restaurants, restaurants would say, I can't afford 20 or 30% because I won't make any margin there. And the problem I think with that blanket statement is really around attributing costs to delivery that aren't related to delivery and therefore the model or the profitability doesn't make sense. So for example, when you have a restaurant and you're paying for your rent, if you're attributing the dining room costs, the actual cost to occupy the dining room, the cost to to staff people who maybe serve the customers in that dining room, all of those costs do not apply to delivery marketplaces. You don't need those costs to run a delivery business. But when you attribute them, it might look like delivery is unprofitable. And then if you use that as logic to not invest, the statements um, don't correlate and they're not logical. And so what I really wanted to encourage restaurants to do is think about just the cost that's associated with doing delivery. And then more specifically, if you have an existing restaurant, just the cost that is associated with producing that incremental order because the additional sales are going to help drive down a lot of the fixed costs. And then your model is going to look completely different. Your occupancy as a percentage of sales is going to change. Your labor as a percentage of sales is going to change because it's more efficient. All of your SG&A and other fixed costs are going to change as a percentage of revenue. And then these 20 to 30% fees start to, to really look more affordable for restaurants than maybe they initially did. In terms of your second question of how this led to Accelerate, there is a time when um, I spent, um, this is after DoorDash, I spent just a day sitting in my dad's restaurant. And what I did was I calculated over the course of a week what his busiest hour was. And then I thought about if he did that busiest hour every single hour that he was open, what his sales would be. And then also like what his current operating efficiency was. And my dad had a very successful restaurant. He was in business for, for, for 41 years when he was running it. And what I realized is that the restaurant was maybe 20% utilized. You compare that to manufacturing, it's like 80%. So when I spent time, you know, talking to restaurants, spent some time consulting for, for Dine Brands, parent company, Applebee's and IHOP, what I realized was that success in the restaurant industry with large portions of Uh, volume going to delivery hinged on doing more sales in a single kitchen. And the best way to do that was by running multiple brands out of that single kitchen and making restaurants go from that 20% utilization rate to maybe 50% utilization rate to use the existing assets as, as, as much as a restaurant could. And that's how we landed on the idea for Accelerate. And Accelerate's mission at the beginning was really simple, help restaurants serve more customers. 
And the best way that we can do that is by providing multiple brands that restaurants can run out of their single kitchen and by providing great software and great technology to reduce the operational burden of running multiple brands out of a single kitchen. Going back to what you said earlier about like restaurants being able to like justify the marketplace fees, can you just like walk walk us through some of the the math behind that? Like that's assuming that these are all incremental sales and that your kitchen is underutilized at the at the moment and that you're not, you know, full in the front of house and it's not taking away from that experience. Is that kind of the gist? Yeah, I think like the gist is that incremental delivery sales are what's key to driving profitability in the space. And the reason for that is because if you can drive incremental sales, your occupancy costs can go from, let's say it's an average of 10 today down to two to 4% occupancy costs, which gives you a six to 8% savings. Your labor can go from maybe 30% down to 15 to 70 to 17%, which gives you about a 15% savings. So that's 21% there. So then when we when we start factoring in the reductions in those fixed costs by um, driving incremental sales, then justifying the 20% becomes a lot easier. I think the question that I had when starting to accelerate is for how long are these delivery sales truly incremental? And what does the mix look like, the channel mix look like longer term in terms of on-prem versus off-prem dining, because if the off-prem and specifically delivery percentage of sales made up too much of the total sales without driving incremental business, that's where margin and profitability challenges began. And that's where things like virtual brands became increasingly more important because they're def- they should be definitionally new volume. It's not the core business. It allows them to really boost the, the, the incremental sales, in my opinion, in a much more drastic way than a restaurant would be able to just operating their core brand on a delivery marketplace. Totally. And it's a lot easier to prove. I mean, there's pretty much no doubt that if you're doing a second door or a third or fourth door that into the same kitchen, that that's a customer that would have come into kind of your front door. And so I've been a big proponent of, of virtual brands as well, but that, you know, it doesn't mean it doesn't come with some of their own trade-offs um, when it comes to a lot of these celebrity back concepts and the oversight and the quality control that, that comes along with it. So I'm definitely curious to hear what sets you apart from like, let's say a, a next bite or a virtual dining concepts. So I think first and foremost, we believe proximity is power and we wanna be very hands-on in our business. And because of that, we've built local operating teams around the Accelerate business. Those local operating teams are responsible for training restaurants, really getting into kitchens and understanding some of the complexities and helping them execute our brands. Quality control, like you mentioned, can be really challenging in virtual brand in the vir- virtual brand space, but it doesn't have to be. And the way that we're deploying talent and local teams, I think, really differentiates us in the space and has allowed us to and paid dividends for ratings and reviews and customer attention. And we plan on doubling down on those local efforts. The second piece is really centered around the technology and the product that we're building. I think. There's a lot of operational complexity that can be created if you're running multiple brands out of a single kitchen, but it doesn't have to be. I'll give you an example. Like when a restaurant runs out of cheddar cheese, 
our job as a product company is to enable a cashier to say that they're out of cheddar cheese and that cheddar cheese to be removed uh, from every item on every brand in that single kitchen. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about some of the challenges that could be created through virtual brands and solving those upfront through great software, great architecture, and great technology. In addition to that, I think we spend a lot of time thinking about the brands that will be capable of executing on an existing line. This is very, very different than opening a restaurant from scratch when you can build out mm-hmm. um, you know, all of the, the products and equipment requirements from scratch. We have to think about what makes sense to build into an existing line and how do we think about these concepts from a delivery first mindset so that we know how these concepts will be after 30 minutes in a car being delivered to consumers. And that's at the forefront of our many innovation in R&D. So I know you have like a lot of, you know, well-respected brands that are, you know, their logo is up on your site. I'm just kind of curious to hear, you know, the two sides of your marketplace. You have host kitchens, right? Which are, you know, existing brick and mortar restaurants who are leveraging that make line to add an additional or multiple additional brands. And then you have the licensing side of brands that are either purely virtual or some brand that is an actual restaurant that has a brick and mortar that people know and already recognize. What's the mix of those two on your platform and who who is this kind of targeting on, on both ends of that uh, equation? So aside from some of the larger enterprise partners, everyone's using uh, our virtual brands that uses our software. The two, the two really go hand in hand. But when you see, um, you're probably maybe alluding to like Famous Dave's and mm-hmm. Applebee's and Dave's Hot Chicken, some of these other brands that we work with. And I think the response to that is when you build really great software that helps the restaurants optimize their digital presence, helps them serve more customers by taking an omni-channel approach. And that software is not only valuable for our own brands that we create internally and license out, but it's valuable for large corporate enterprises like Applebee's across 1500 locations so that they can get insight into their their ratings and reviews and sales across platform and their virtual brand sales for their virtual brand that that, that they built in-house. And so we do have some customers that license our software without licensing our virtual brands. Got it. So all of all of these brands that they're that they're doing, it's not like Dave's Hot Chicken is is basically licensing its fried chicken sandwiches into other host kitchens. It's that Dave's Hot Kitchens is actually a host kitchen that is that is either using Accelerate to develop a secondary brand or they're taking one of you know the different brands that you've you developed like Nash's Hot Chicken, Tendies Chicken Tenders or Wing Spot and just adding that on to their existing operations. Is that kind of so for Dave's they're they're using our our software like I mentioned earlier. So our tablet that um that makes sure that like all orders from our, all marketplaces come into to one centralized place that you could see your delivery business and performance across DoorDash and Uber Eats and Postmates and Grubhub, that you can ensure that your storefronts are online and your uptime is high. So we've built a lot of this really great software because we needed to, to power our virtual brands, but it also is powering brick and mortar locations like Dave's as well. Got it. So it's like a mix of Olo meets... I don't know, meets next bite, right? 
It's a platform that allows you to get visibility and insights across all the delivery marketplaces in one place. So how much sales you do, whether or not your storefronts are up, whether or not you're in programs like DashPass, basically helps restaurants serve more customers through the channels that they're already plugged into and get visibility into all of that data. And so like how many concepts is sustainable for for a single kitchen to take on, do you see in, in kind of your customers? It's a great question. Our average restaurant takes on about three concepts. The right answer to that question is it depends. There are some concepts that pair really well together. And when you pair them well together and the prep recipes um, are the same across different brands, then restaurants are able to, to host multiple brands. In addition to that, it really depends on the kitchen size and the equipment that, that kitchens have. If kitchens have more capacity and a large kitchen size, they might be able to take on more brands. If kitchens don't have much capacity and and they have very small kitchens, they might only be able to take on one brand. So I think it depends on a multitude of factors, one being kitchen size, two being capacity, and three being overlap between concepts. And then maybe four being like space as well to actually store ingredients. And how are you seeing kind of the longevity of these brands? Like how are these brands that are that you're developing that are built to last? Or are they more kind of like the VDC next bite ones that have some sort of shelf life and they're going to just keep cycling through these concepts every year um, or every few months? It's a really great question. And I think this also maybe is another point to your question earlier around differentiation. We plan on building an enduring business and we plan on building enduring concepts. It's really important for us and it's really important to our operators. And so because of that, we've heavily focused on thinking about why will these brands matter in 30 or 40 years? Why will these continue to grow over time and continue to add value to our restaurant partners? And so our plan is not to introduce brands that we think might do really well for six months to a year and then cycle through those. Our plan is to build brands that will be enduring and brands that will continue to grow and add value to our partners over time. Got it. So I'm just going to read some of these off the website. We got, cool. you know, Fatty's Philly, which is, I guess, a cheesesteak brand. We got Mrs. Goldfarb's Unreal Deli Sandwiches. We got Super Smash Burgers. I've definitely seen that one come up because I've definitely searched for Smash Burgers. <laughs> Egghead Breakfast Burritos. Uh, Salad Box. Tendies Chicken Tenders. Wing Spot. And Nash's Hot Chicken. So each of these seems like you can kind of, you know, look at the kind of banners of players on your site, whether it's 800 degrees pizza or fat burger or, you know, Applebee's or Famous Dave's and pretty much put each of these brands into a quadrant of, of what kind of category they serve and kind of bring those kind of incremental sales. Like, I guess, like, how did you kind of come up with those those concepts and and where where were the insights kind of gleaned for to to kind of develop those different uh, categories? So when we develop new brands, we like to look at a few key things. One, we like to look at first and foremost brands, cuisines, concept types that we know will deliver well. Our, our business is primarily delivery, and so we need to ensure that what we're creating is going to be a great experience after sitting in a car for anywhere between 10 and 30 minutes. The second thing that we like to look at is 
market trends. So we do run an analysis to understand you know, what consumer behavior and preferences are looking like today and what we think that they'll look like uh, in, in one, three, and five years. And then the third thing that we like to look at is where are there selection gaps in the markets that we operate in and how can we craft concepts that are going to be able to appeal to consumers that don't have a logical substitute. We're really excited about the selection that we're able to bring to customers. And that's especially important in markets where there aren't Philly cheese, like a great Philly mm-hmm. cheesesteak brand available. And so we like to look at those selection gaps and use that to inform any innovation in R&D. Got it. And, and how much of this requires setting up a new supply chain for these restaurants? Like, do they need to get set up on a new distributor or a new skew of ingredients um, to get going? Or how much of it is leveraging their existing, you know, purchasing? It's a really great question. This is something we thought a lot about lately, especially in the midst of um, the hardest supply chain environment that, that, that we've seen. And so what we try to do is we try to create concepts today in a way that will fit really well with an existing supply chain. So we look at Cisco and US Foods and Gordon Food Service and PFG and Restaurant Depot and Costco Business Center and try to um, almost find like the least common denominators in terms of the actual raw ingredients that are required to execute our concepts. And we think a lot about, you know, what ingredients a restaurant is likely to already have and try to build out concepts in a way that supports all audiences. I think over time, this could change. And we even do have like incentive for purchase agreements set up with national suppliers now. So we can set up restaurants a supply chain. But if for some reason they want to stick with their current supplier, we like to make sure that our concepts are going to be able to fit within mm-hmm. within that parameter and within those requirements. And are you doing like any auto replenishment when when the you know line cook is saying we're out of cheddar cheese, eighty six it off all the marketplaces? Is there then a, again a, another process that starts to auto replenish, or is that something that's done, you know, kind of the legacy way? Something that's done by the restaurant today. Uh, and I think the main reason is because of the lack of maybe visibility into the, the core restaurant. But that is something that we definitely plan on helping restaurant partners with over mm-hmm. time. Supply chain inventory management is a huge challenge for restaurants. And we like to understand what their what their biggest problems are and build solutions around those. And so it definitely is something that's top of mind for us to help them, uh, especially because we're we're increasing the flow through of these products. And so replenishing them Mm -hmm. um, is a very important part on driving more sales and helping restaurants get better at predicting how much they might need to have on hand is something that, that we work, we work with them on um, now, but we'll continue to, to, to develop and, um, and, and maybe productize over time. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge uh, undertaking. You know, there's a lot of people like pepper and Chaco and, you know, grub market all taking on that task. And, you know, these are hundreds of billion dollars of, of TAMs uh, um, that they're going after here. So it's a, it's a huge opportunity. Um, I want to, you know, shift the, the conversation a little bit over to the next generation of delivery. And as far as vertically integrated ghost kitchens against this kind of asset light marketplace, you know, I'm kind of curious as you know, you, you started to kind of flush out some predictions in your 90 page deck about ghost kitchens, but 
I wanted to hear a little bit more about the threat that a vertically integrated player like Cloud Kitchens, which is currently playing on all the major marketplaces today, you know, what that threat poses tomorrow when they do launch kind of their own branded virtual food hall and, you know, pit that against, you know, a traditional marketplace. Got it. So is the specific question around Cloud Kitchens vertically integrating and how that would impact like the DoorDash yeah. or New Breeds? Mm-hmm. I think the the reality is that there's a lot of restaurants in America today, and it's going to be very hard for any player to service all of those restaurants in the ghost kitchen space. And, and the proximity of those restaurants to customers is very important to drive marketplace efficiencies. So I definitely think that there's an opportunity for vertical integration with ghost kitchen companies and them to become marketplaces longer term. And I do think that they provide a unique value to restaurants maybe that are already at capacity that need an outlet for delivery because they're unable to produce the amount of volume that they would need to produce to fulfill all their delivery orders. And ghost kitchens are a great outlet for that. But I also think that the reality of the situation is that there are a large number of existing restaurants already out there today that aren't fully utilized, that have kitchen space, have the capacity to do more orders. And those restaurants are what really can tackle a lot of selection gaps and increase speed to market as well. Building a ghost kitchen facility requires a lot of permitting. It requires a lot of development and the speed at which they can deploy new concepts is inevitably gonna be much less than the speed that an existing kitchen can deploy new concepts. I think to your original point, there's probably opportunity for them and they probably will invest in building a marketplace over time. But I don't know what that means from a proximity perspective, which obviously impacts ASAP times and a selection perspective as well. Unlike maybe some other commodities, food is very differentiated and, 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 and people like certain restaurants to be on the platform. And I think that there isn't a world in which Cloud Kitchens or any other ghost kitchen provider has every single restaurant in in America available through their platform. And we know that selection is really important. And companies like DoorDash, Uber Eats, and Grubhub have been great at acquiring that selection, which increases the value that they have to consumers. So in my opinion, the threat would be probably pretty low. Right. I mean, but if you take a 30 kitchen Cloud Kitchens facility and you know, put five brands in each of those four walls of those subdivided kitchens, you get 150 concepts and you plot that down in a, you know, highly dense urban metropolitan area. Um, you suddenly take, you know, entire, you know, multiple city block neighborhood and shrunk it down to a single facility. That's like 20 or 30,000 square feet, which No, not 30,000. It's definitely less. It's like 10 to 20,000. So it's like, it's pretty insane to think about, you know, just like you can deploy a lot of virtual brands on top of existing brands. And we probably have more virtual brands on marketplaces today than actual physical instances. Yep. You know, what, what you, you can do if you keep deploying, you know, virtual concepts on top of ghost kitchens. Absolutely. But I think going back to the point on selection was that like, the selection is not just important for, for virtual brands, but it's also important for, for brick and mortar, for, for the marketplaces. And inevitably, 
a ghost kitchen company is not going to be able to acquire every brick and mortar location. And so when consumers want that specific thing that they know they can go to DoorDash or Uber Eats for, that specific restaurant, they might not be able to go and get that specific restaurant at a ghost kitchen facility right. if they don't choose to operate. But I think that your point is very valid. And there might be the same cuisines available. Right. But again, I think that cu customers do have brand preferences. Mm -hmm. Customers do have loyalty. And because of that, the infinite selection wins, whereas this type of selection would just be much lesser than a marketplace would be able to acquire a true totally. marketplace. But to your point, like the, the efficiencies are definitely very important that, that can be gained through the ghost kitchens. And those efficiencies will drive down, um, could potentially drive down um, ASAP times improve profitability for the marketplace. So there, there are definitely trade-offs. Right. And I think if you're going to want to get that brand that you absolutely need from that brick and mortar, you might end up just paying more in the long run with kind of the secular trends we're seeing in labor, in food and cost inflation, and in regulation when it comes to gig economy work versus, you know, full-time W-2 drivers that would be associated to a you know, quick commerce or ghost kitchen facility, which is, you know, for the vertically integrated model. Um, so maybe, maybe that becomes the, the fast, cheap option. But if you want, you know, a very specific brand that, you know, you love and need to have, that just becomes fulfilled from the existing restaurant, assuming, you know, we're still under the threshold of, you know, breaking this restaurant's back as far as the cost to, to stay open and, and on, on a high street location. How many of your clients are actually are using your software within brick and mortars versus ghost kitchen? Is it? It's, I'm assuming it's mostly brick and mortar. Mostly brick and mortar. Very few are in ghost kitchens, but some of them are. But the vast majority of our, of our customers licensing our brands are independent local mom and pop shops that have a brick and mortar presence as well. Got it. And you know, we just saw a next bite announcement that they're going to be working with, you know, Tom Colicchio, who, you know, is kind of like a higher end chef who was actually one of the first people to, you know, really get into a fast casual concept with witchcraft was one of the original kind of fast casual sandwich shops, I believe. Do you think we're going to see more of this, this kind of, um, positioning upwards towards these kinds of, um, chefs that are going to, you know, maybe they're like, they have a nice Michelin star restaurant, but they're going to create kind of a more scalable concept and, and leverage a, a virtual brand to do that through a host kitchen. Uh, you know, what are your predictions on where this can go from a brand standpoint? Absolutely. I mean, brands on a marketplace is, I mean, they're, they're, they're like content. Um, and, um, that content includes obviously name and logo, but that content also includes recipes and menus and, um, and the best content creators, I think, will be incentivized to create great content for consumers. And the distribution of that content is what's fundamentally changing. It's becoming more easy to distribute that content. And because of that, I think we'll have great chefs everywhere that want to invest you know, in building their own virtual brand, want to partner with people to deploy that virtual brand and see that they're able to scale these nationally in a much more efficient and much more profitable way than was historically ever possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly hoping that that is the case and that we can see a whole type of variety of, you know, concepts um, and that this really unlocks the floodgates for creativity. Um, you know, there was 
you know, the for, one of the former heads at Zool Kitchens in New York City just launched something called called Hungry House, which is more like this fun drop style kind of take on food, which is like, you know, just like a Supreme drop or a Nike drop of products. They are working with chefs to do kind of limited runs of, um, you know, kind of like a, a, a curated menu of their kind of favorite dishes and really kind of move food to this point of, of content because it, it can be so modular. It, it is so modularized thanks to the technologies that are out there like Accelerate and NextBite, et cetera. And this new wave of, you know, of ghost kitchens plus restaurants who are opening up their doors to to additional concepts. So I'm certainly paying attention, close attention to this idea of food as content. Absolutely. And it's a really exciting world for restaurateurs and for consumers as well. It gives them such great selection, more selection than was ever possible. and gives restaurants the ability to drive profits. It's great, in my opinion, also for staffs, which I think is a contrarian viewpoint maybe. But, uh, but I think that they're going to be more productive, which will lead to greater earning potential in the long term. And that's a really important piece of the equation as well. I, I want to jump into some Q&A here as we wind this up. Uh, we got Spencer asking, you know, kind of on the, the point of longevity, he's saying, does the idea of building enduring brands match up with restaurants as they currently exist? Most of our independent restaurants in my city are compelled to change their concept every five to 10 years to avoid getting stale. And he's uh, actually up in Canada. Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's lots of enduring restaurant brands that we have today. And our plan is to build an enduring restaurant brand, just like McDonald's has built an enduring restaurant brand. And so while I do agree that there are some brands that are being created today out in the marketplace that are not targeted at being enduring brands, I still feel confident that we won't have to turn these brands over even in five or 10 years. And our goal is to continue to invest in them and make them long-term enduring brands. We feel very confident in the ability to do that. Do, do you have any like interesting case studies that you could potentially share around what your restaurants are seeing kind of uh, as they adopt some of these additional brands on, into their kitchens? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I guess what, what I can share is that most of our restaurants that partner with us uh, will increase revenue by double digit percentages, which is huge from, uh, from an almost immediate same store sales increase. Some of our top restaurants do over a million dollars a year. And I think what I'm most excited about is that our average restaurant and average brand continues to grow sales over time. We, we actually are uh, about a week and a half out from our two year anniversary of our first virtual brand order ever. And uh, what's most exciting about our concepts is that the compounding growth that we continue to exceed to see 20 months out, which I think might be atypical for a brand that's focused on on maybe um, the, the the strategy around this initial pop and then replacement. Mm-hmm. And so our brands do continue to see growth consistently over time in our kitchens, which is a key metric that we are very mindful of internally and is very important for building the enduring brand. And are you spending, you know, deploying lots of dollars as far as customer acquisition to promote these brands or is it pretty much mostly organic um, search-based kind of, you know, people discover you by searching in cheesesteak and then land on that brand 
or you know some sort of mix of the two? It's a mix of the two. We definitely do paid acquisition campaigns where we'll spend you know, three dollars off, uh, three dollars off your order, fifteen or more, or do a percentage off or a BOGO campaign to get initial velocity for restaurants. So it's a mix of both. But we do we do deploy our marketing capital and make sure that we're driving volume to operators that's meaningful for their business. And the advertising component is is very important value add of Accelerate. So it's more like on a on a transactional basis and less on like a kind of like overarching kind of campaign that is kind of blanketed everywhere. We do both, but yes, the primarily today we're deploying capital through uh, like through transaction based right. discounts or offers. And have you played around with like some of the newer offerings from DoorDash, uh, like the new restaurant search uh, sponsored search keywords, sponsored listings? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we absolutely have. And then how's that going? Are you able to share anything on that? I think the we don't uh, we probably don't have a long enough duration of data um, to know for sure, but the early results look really promising. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, like any any new platform, a new new ad platform, you know, when you when you come on, the return on ad spend is you know above average, and then over time, as people come on and start bidding. Those kinds of returns start to weaken, and the question is just like how much at the end of the day. Um, we have a question from Ashley. Uh, she's asking um, about the host kitchen aspect. You know, how do you identify, screen, onboard, and operate those kitchens? Great question. We uh, we 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 knock on the door and we get our we we get bodies in the kitchen. I mean, that's there. There is no magic answer to identifying whether or not a host kitchen is going to be great other than getting in the restaurant, having our chefs go in, look at the kitchen equipment, assess the feasibility to, to operate our virtual brands and to help them execute the concepts. Um, yeah, there's no, no shortcut. Cool. Well, it, it's been really insightful. Um, chatting with you and kind of really fascinating to dig into your background and, and a lot of the insights that you've uncovered over decades of, of being in the business from different, you know, angles between, you know, your, your family's business and, you know, being at DoorDash and now at a Sequoia back startup. So, uh, really interesting to, to hear it all. Um, if people want to, you know, I guess now's your time to plug Accelerate away from a job opening perspective, from a consumer perspective of trying the food, uh, or from a you know brand perspective of coming on board as a host kitchen. So tell us how we can get involved. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, at a high level, I believe today is one of the best times to be a, a restaurateur. I think that there is a massive amount of opportunity and if restaurants are strategic and, and forward-looking and um, and really work to go with a grain of customer behavior, the outcomes will be tremendous longer term for them. You can find out about Accelerate by going to Accelerate.io. It's Accelerate with one C, A-C-E-L-E-R-A-T-E.io to find out more about our business, to get in contact with us if you want to become a host kitchen. Our virtual brands are available in Los Angeles, Austin, New York, New Jersey, Atlanta, Miami, 
Denver. So we're expanding to new markets very quickly and appreciate you know all the 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 orders and the great customer loyalty that we have there. From a job standpoint, we're very actively hiring. We've grown our team from just a few folks earlier this year to more than 25, uh, and we'll grow that substantially next year. Uh, job board is is linked directly from our website as well, so you can find out more there. Yeah, definitely uh, welcome the opportunity to to work with as many host kitchens as possible, and really excited about the opportunity that we have to make a meaningful impact to their business, to ensure that they're profitable, and and to have you know that hands-on local team uh, white club service that we have with all of our customers, with you know any anyone who might um, might partner with us from from this podcast episode, and definitely appreciate your time, Matt. It was great chatting with you. Awesome, yeah. Looking forward to uh, keeping in touch, and um, you know I'm gonna definitely ping you about a hungry virtual brand. I think I wanna I wanna do a bunch <laughs> of meme trending memes and. Uh, create an nft and have people be able to order it uh anywhere they choose but yeah save that for another episode you know know how to reach me (laughs) all right man uh take care and thanks again for coming on yep thanks matt it was great chatting thanks for tuning in if you like what you hear please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast and if you're curious to get a first-hand look at the cutting edge of food and tech check out hungry.tv That's Hungry With No You, where you can join in on live conversations like these or sign up for the free weekly newsletter.